Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. The more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. Penis Project Podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Prost, Exercise for Prostate Cancer Incorporated, a not-for-profit charity set up in 2012 by myself. Dr. Joe If you want to know any more information about Prost, including our online service now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health. So, Prost. That's where I want to call my home. So, stop for a second and listen. It's not silent at all. Welcome to the Penis Project Podcast. Today's interview with Darren Brown, renowned physiotherapist from the UK, is possibly one of the most important we will ever have. Because it's all about the coronavirus and how Darren, as an individual working in the UK, was one of the first victims and how over many months his recovery went on and on and on. What we now know is that there is a condition called long covid And today's podcast is all about bringing this to your attention to help educate all of us on life living with coronavirus, not only the infectious stages if we do succumb to it, but what might happen to us should we have ongoing symptoms. I've just actually had my second AstraZeneca vaccine just two days ago. First time round, I was a little bit uncomfortable for three or four days felt a bit nauseous, headachy and had muscle aches, but that soon disappeared and I've been fine in the last three months. Um, just two days ago, I had my second vaccine and I haven't even had a sore arm this time. So in this podcast, we just aim to demystify some of the concerns around COVID and the coronavirus and immunisations, but also to bring you a true picture. In the UK, they were hit like an avalanche initially way back in February 2020 with more than 6 million cases since then. Their vaccine program is almost world leading as well as their their research on investigating the outcomes. So I'd urge you to please listen, bring other people to hear this 55 minute conversation with Darren Brown and to also look up the resources that he kindly shares with us in our show notes. Thank you so much and please learn, listen, and hopefully you too will feel the urgency and um, desire to help our community gain its freedom back. Thank you. Welcome to the Penis Project podcast. Today I am absolutely beyond excited to welcome my dear friend all the way from the UK, physiotherapist Darren Brown. And Darren Brown uh, and I met at the WCPT World, World Physiotherapy Conference um, 
way back in 2015. So we've known each other for six years. Darren, uh, all the way from Perth, Western Australia to you, how are you doing today? Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, good morning and good afternoon. It's Sunday morning here. I've just had a coffee. Uh, thank you for inviting me to your penis pod podcast. Uh, I'm very excited to be on this. Well, it's a really important discussion. And here in Australia, we've just had um, a very difficult situation arise. And you, as a physiotherapist, have a specialisation in HIV rehabilitation for adults. But more recently, you've been involved with uh, the experience of long COVID in the UK. And uh, you've also had a personal experience of having COVID. And it's really important, I think, that we have a good discussion today about how it all began, what's happening over in your space. Because here in Australia, we're only just starting to feel the repercussions of community spread. We managed to be the island country for 18 months, but now we are unfortunately dealing with the Delta strain and it's starting to really knock us over. And we're quite unprepared. Our immunisation rates are really quite low. Uh, we're at about 19% of our population being fully vaccinated as of today. Uh, but we've got a long way to go. In the UK, you've got more than 60% fully vaccinated. Well, yeah, so um, um, I'm Darren Brown. I'm a cisgendered gay white man of mixed English and Irish heritage. Uh, I live in London in the UK. Um, I'm a clinical and academic physiotherapist. And as you said, Joe, my background is in HIV, disability and rehabilitation. Um, but in um, March 2020, so quite some time ago now, uh, I did contract acute coronavirus. Um, and since that time, I've been living with long COVID, um, which is a term that was created by communities of people living with and affected by the long term consequences of coronavirus. But there's many other terms. So you may have heard of post COVID conditions, post acute COVID-19, uh, the post acute sequelae of COVID-19. Uh, but communities of people living with long COVID prefer the term long COVID on the whole. Um, but yeah, where it's, it's quite interesting to hear how um, the pandemic rises and falls at different times and at different yeah. rates in different parts of the world. And I certainly know from our perspective in the UK, where we've had quite a run of this pandemic, um, it, it, we've, I, I wouldn't lie, I think many of us have probably looked at Australia with envious eyes. Um, so it's really sad to hear how things are changing. And I think it demonstrates the um, high transmissibility of the Delta various and how serious it is that even with countries like Australia, where the community transmission has been overwhelmingly controlled throughout the majority of this last 18 months the delta variant is is changing that um so it's 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 sad obviously that the lessons that have been learned in other countries have to be applied to other settings but i'm really pleased that the the, the situations that we've been through in the uk um, particularly in the context of long covid can be applied to other settings like australia and you can take on board the lessons we've learned and hopefully not make the same mistakes well, we learned that early on, actually. We learned that we needed to wear masks, we needed to lock down and lock down very quickly. And here in Western Australia, we've actually had three lockdowns of no more than seven days. And then we've been able to get on with life and eliminate it. But not so with Delta. We've actually got 16 million out of our 26 million population currently in complete lockdown. And um, it's statistics growing daily. And, and so that that's a whole new world for us. And looking across... Uh, to the UK. Just looking at your statistics today, so I just I spent a bit of time researching this. So you'll know the population of UK is about 68 million people and you've had more than 6.2 million cases. So 
9 to 10% of your population have been affected by COVID, but 4,000, sorry, 4.8 million have actually recovered. But that does mean that 1.3 million plus people are still living with COVID at the moment. And given that you're still getting around about 25 to 30,000 new cases a day, that tells me in all my statistical analysis that about 20, 22%-ish people are still potentially living with COVID and some of them must be what you're talking about, the long COVID scenario. Yeah, we're really quite lucky in the UK in terms of how our Office for National Statistics has been probably, um, I, I, I would argue, maybe the leaders in the world in terms of uh, the the data collection across the full continuum of this pandemic, mm. from transmissions to vaccinations to hospitalizations to deaths, plus the long-term consequences, including long COVID. We do actually know that the ONS data or the Office for National Statistics is the best, probably the most representative data of the prevalence of long COVID or persistent symptoms in the world so far. Um, and it is, is quite striking. So if we were to look at, as you said there, those figures, you know, we, we've got uh, set over 70% of our population, uh, adult population doubly vaccinated um, and over 80% with a single dose of the vaccination. And that's um, and, biased, I believe. Uh, I'm not sure. I think Israel might be beating us on that, actually. Okay. Um, as is, um, there is another country, I can't remember, but um, I won't lie. I'm not, I'm not a public health epidemiologist, so I'm not. <laughs> but I know that... Um, but you're doing, the, the you're stati- doing better. Well, the, yeah, we are. It's interesting because since we 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 had a day that was some people coined in uh, thought was inappropriately coined as freedom day because uh, unlike yeah yeah the 19th yeah uh, so we've had multiple lockdowns here in the UK and we're just coming out of our third wave of trans of community transmissions oh, yes. and the th- the this freedom day uh, was a, a day where all of our restrictions so that's our lockdown orders mandates on doing things outdoors social distancing mask wearing was all lifted on the 19th of July and what's really interesting is that many people were arguing it's quite it's quite a by uh, it's a a really bipolar kind of terrible terms we we were divisive Yeah, and it's become quite a fractious debate. But what's really interesting is what's happened with that. Um, We haven't seen the increases that was potentially anticipated after Freedom Day. Um, And I think people want to really understand that better. We know that um, the anticipation was that with more community mixing, less restrictions and less simple public health measures that we was expecting it to go up. But potentially with the level of vaccination that's happened, plus also the events that were going on, there was the the Euros, the European Football Championships that happened. That increased our spikes massively, particularly amongst men. Um, Also, we're on school holidays at the moment. So children that are not vaccinated are not mixing. So there's a number of factors here, and it's not just as simple as one thing. And I think what we're certainly expecting is that by September, when the kids go back to school, we're going to be looking at the numbers 
listeners more closely. And I think many of our public health experts have been saying we are in a period of profound uncertainty around community transmissions because we just really do not understand. And what we believe is that quite a lot of the world's eyes may be on us because this is a unique strategy, which is that removing the restrictions when there was increasing community transmission, plus the high level of community vaccinations is not something that's being modelled elsewhere in the world. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Our public health services in terms of our healthcare services are preparing for future waves. But I think what's a really positive outcome of this with high levels of community vaccinations um, is that there's been less hospitalizations in this wave and less deaths, but they are still occurring. And I think that's really important that we recognize that they are still occurring. People are still being admitted to hospital. People are still dying. And majority of those people are not vaccinated. But we are seeing vaccine breakthroughs and we are seeing that people still can contract coronavirus that are doubly vaccinated. Um, but But hopefully the severity of their disease is less. They're less likely to be admitted hospital and they're less likely to die. But interestingly, obviously, my lens is long COVID. And we also know that vaccinations are predicted or hypothesized to reduce the present prevalence of long COVID by a third. So if we're thinking about the role of vaccines, you know, it's widespread in terms of the benefits of vaccinations. So let's just say that again. If you get COVID and you've been fully vaccinated, the likelihood of spread is anticipated to drop down by one third. Oh, no, sorry. So vaccinations obviously reduce community transmission. They reduce the severity of disease if you do get it. They reduce your risk of being hospitalised if you get coronavirus. They reduce your risk of dying if you get coronavirus. And they also reduce your risk of getting long COVID if you get coronavirus. Oh, okay, including long COVID, okay. Yeah. So that third that I mentioned, it's it's not um, it's it's modelled estimates, but it's estimated to reduce the 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 risk of getting long COVID by a third if you are vaccinated. Um, And that's you know that's a five point win there, isn't it? You know, vaccinations clearly doing good stuff there. Um, But I think one of the things that's been really clear here in the UK is that there's been this um, maybe a narrative that vaccination is the tool. If, say, the only tool. And I think we need to remember that it's more than vaccination. We still need to put in place our usual measures, such as mask wearing, social distancing or physical distancing, ventilation, making sure the windows are open, um, that we're not crowding in places uh, amongst lots of people uh, that, you know, I don't like the the use of the term super spreader because I think it carries a laden of stigma, but, you know, it's what people understand. Um, So, you know, super spreader events, but also, you know, thinking about let's not forget the topic of long COVID in these conversations because it's frequently forgotten about just like children are frequently forgotten about because kids not only do get COVID, they also get long COVID. Yeah, and I've read this morning that about 13% of kids are getting long COVID and that's just from one of the earlier studies and I guess as we understand it more and and investigate it more, that might, you know, change one way or the other. What I'd really love to actually do, Darren, is do you mind just letting us know how old you actually are? Yeah, I'm 37. I'll be 38 in November. Uh, so I'm a young. You developed man. it at 36. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. So I'd just like to just um, 
talk a little bit about what you actually did as a physiotherapist. You, you, I think, put up your hand to go and work at the coalface. And um, certainly those that contracted um, this condition, COVID in the early phases, uh, a lot of health workers did as well, uh, as well as those having, you know, other comorbidities. But do you mind just telling us a little bit about how, what was going on at the very beginning? How, how, how much of a panic yeah, sure. was there? And, and, and really love that setting to be shared. Yeah, so if we go back to the beginning of 2020, obviously we saw what was going on with uh, transmissions at the end of 2019 in China and how it was moving across the world. We saw what was happening in Italy um, and I think we were preparing for it to hit here in the UK. Um, And certainly it really did hit. Um, In March 2020 was when um, the hospital that I work in had its first admissions and it just so happens that because I work in a, an infectious diseases unit um, with negative pressure side rooms, that's where those patients went on. But actually, we weren't directly dealing with those patients okay. at the time. We weren't caring for them. Um, but I, by nature of being in that space, I believe that I occupationally acquired coronavirus. And I think an important point here is that we know that there are certain risk factors for acquiring acute coronavirus and one of those is being a healthcare worker Um, and that also translates to long covid uh, which mirrors my story Um, i am one of those healthcare workers that acquired coronavirus occupationally through work Um, it was at a time when we had we're not wearing PPE because we weren't treating the patients. So um, I developed acute coronavirus. It was the usual clusters of all those symptoms um, that we expect. It was loss of sense of smell and taste, uh, fevers, overwhelming exhaustion and fatigue, myalgia, arthralgia, um, um, lots of symptoms, headaches in between. And um, I felt like I'd actually recovered relatively quickly. I felt better after about three days of acute coronavirus. Uh, Due to what the the policies were at the time, I was to isolate for a total period of 10 days before returning to work. And I did do that. And you mentioned that I was part of a response at that time. That in that time that I was off those 10 days, things had really escalated. And so when I returned to work, very quickly staff were being redeployed and we were redeployed to various different settings and uh, as a, a conscientious healthcare worker I was part of those response those responses so I was redeployed to acute medical wards I was redeployed to a high dependency units in terms of non-invasive ventilation and then I was redeployed to intensive care and we were working um, incredible hours we'd completely remodeled our working patterns we weren't just working day shifts we were working nighttime shifts overnight shifts i was sleeping in hotels because i couldn't get home we were working hard and actually no one had worked i don't believe many people had worked in that environment before it was it was worrying there was there was fear of what was going on. Um, And interestingly, it taught everyone a huge amount of lessons. And our subsequent waves, people were much more prepared, but they were also much more fatigued overall because of what they'd gone through before. Um, So I returned to work. um, In fact, I returned to work full time for six months. But I had some persistent symptoms uh, after acute coronavirus. So I still had this, this fluctuating, episodic, 
unpredictable fatigue that kind of just hit me like a wall every so often um, where I just couldn't do anything. Um, and then it would kind of self-resolve and I'd crack on with life. Um, but what I was doing, I, I also had some shortness of breath, some chest tightness, and I noticed every time I was walking upstairs, I was tripping. Um, so I had some like neurological discoordination. Um, but I was like, I'm a physio, so I did what I thought was best. So I tried to rehab myself. I, I gradually increased my physical activity. I thought it would be good for my lungs, for my fatigue, for my coordination. I was doing all of that. And as time went on, my fatigue was actually getting worse. And I didn't recognize that. I went from having these sudden episodes once or twice a week okay. uh, to a background level of fatigue that was always there that was fluctuating. And eventually in September last year, I crashed and I crashed so hard. Um, I ended up bed bound for a week. I couldn't get out of bed. I was dependent on someone providing me food and water. I was signed off work for what started off a week, but ended up being two months. I ended up having to walk with a walking stick. Um, and as a 37 uh, and then, year old, yeah. Uh, yeah, as a 37-year-old, I was walking with a walking stick for uh, nearly a month. Um, and mm -hmm. I ended up being signed off work for two weeks, uh, two months. And then it actually took me six months to recover from that crash. Um, and that was mostly supported by uh, other people either living with or affected by long COVID or other community groups of people living with chronic health issues, such as the MECFS community, who provided me with all of the knowledge and skills to manage, which was to stop, rest and pace. Um, because clearly, as a physiotherapist, I'd done the wrong things. I tried to push, exercise and go harder. And push. And what... <laughs> Yeah. And then what had happened is I had truly crashed. And when I say crash, as I said, you know, being bed bound and walking with a walking stick, that's not normal for a physically able, physically active, 100% busy, 100% passionate young man. Um, that's not normal. So I, I, yeah. Darren, I, I'm just going to read through the list of symptoms this morning. And um when I gathered them, the list just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then finally, I came across just one more paper that actually alluded to 100 different potential symptoms that um, long COVID causes. Now, when I talk about long COVID, just by definition, and you might hopefully agree with me, is that symptoms that are persisting from four weeks after you've actually been diagnosed with COVID. So uh, we expect that acute illness phase to disappear, that it may take up to 12 weeks for that uh you know, sort of inflammatory phase to, or infectious stage to kind of resolve symptomatically, but that most people are actually feeling quite well within a few weeks. Is there a better so, definition of that? So, yeah, well, this is what's really fascinating. And I think this is where a lot of the potential discussions, to use a light word, are around this, um, which is long COVID hasn't got a consensus definition Okay. yet. The World Health Organization are working on that. And I know that that is due imminently, um, which is a consensus definition on what is what's anticipated to be termed post-COVID post conditions, also known as long COVID. Um, so you're right. Long COVID as a community-driven derived term was 
used because we were all told that there was this binary in mm. a, in coronavirus. It was you got it and you either died or you got better within two weeks. Oh. And there was a whole bunch of people that didn't get better within two weeks that didn't die um, mm. or had it mildly yep. and in the acute phase. And so long COVID is, as you rightly said, basically just a term that, de- defi- that describes the persistence of symptoms And we know that people can get long COVID irrespective of the severity of their acute phase and irrespective of whether they've been admitted to hospital. So I, as a personal example, would have been classified as a moderate acute coronavirus because I had a superseding chest infection. I'd had, I had a, um, a COVID uh, pneumonia on top of my COVID okay. um, and I was treated with antibiotics, but it didn't require oxygen therapy. So therefore I was classified as moderate by the World Health Organization definitions. But for those people that were maybe just at home that never got admitted to hospital, didn't require oxygen therapy, didn't require any antibiotics and didn't have a chest infection, they might be mild, wow. even though it feels really severe when you've got it. Um, so they'd be classified as mild. Now we know that people with mild are also can get long COVID. And even we've got data now demonstrating that people in the acute phase that are asymptomatic can get long COVID. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, here's, here's the whole reason for us having this discussion, because this is, you know, it's a public health necessity to understand what's going on it's it's a community necessity i'm just going to read um maybe the top 20 lists uh sorry symptoms that i've found founded i'll just say them out now uh just so people can start resonating with the picture so this is long covid most common symptoms extreme tiredness and fatigue shortness of breath brain fog symptoms of cough flu sore throat high temperatures joint pain more seriously, things like kidney failure, liver failure, chest pain, um, blood levels increase, cholesterol levels changes to potential presentations of diabetes, memory and concentration problems, gastrointestinal distress, sleep disorders, rashes, headaches, tachycardia, heart palpitations, loss of sense of smell or taste, anxiety, depression, dizziness or postural orthostatic syndromes like POTS, uh, exercise intolerance, tinnitus and earaches, weight loss, uh, rectal dysfunction, and a whole host of other things. So I don't know. The list just goes on, doesn't it? It just goes on. It just goes on. And I think this is why the working um, uh, hypothesis on the mechanisms of long COVID are are so important. Um, You know, post-viral diseases, post-viral conditions are not new. We've only got to look at the whole raft of research that exists in the in the realm of things like myalgic encephalomyelitis or Lyme's disease or those sort of conditions that have all been post-viral or post-infection. You know, this clusters of symptoms uh, are, are really severely disabling for many people. They're often episodic and multidimensional in nature. And what we know is that the, the research that was most recently published in The Lancet by the Patient-Led Research Collaborative Uh, identified which is community groups so people living with and affected by long covid doing research with people living with long covid identified over two yeah over 200 different symptoms okay you just doubled my quick but yeah so but but we know that the the symptoms that are most prevalent in that study 
was ex- was fatigue or exhaustion, something called post-exertional malaise, or also known as post-exertional symptom exacerbation, which you used another term, which was an exercise intolerance. So basically, that's a symptom where when you exert yourself, whether that be physically, cognitively, or socially, other symptoms, many of them, can get worse. Um, and then also cognitive dysfunction, or sometimes termed as brain fog. They're the top three in that paper. But both the CDC in America and also NICE in the UK have given lists of top symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, what we know is that some of the hypotheses as to what drives long COVID make it unsurprising that there are so many parts of the body that can be infected because this ultimately is a systemic body issue. And so it can affect any body system. And so it could be one of three things, potentially. It could be the presence of persistent virus living in reservoirs. We know from the context of HIV that that exists. It's not an unusual or an unexplained outcome, um, even when people are undetectable with HIV, meaning they're untransmittable or can't pass it on. Um, Also, we know that it could potentially be that there are viral fragments that are locking around in the body, causing the immune system to respond. Or it could be the infection has actually resulted in a dysfunction in the immune system and that it's becoming either hypo or hyperreactive active um so with that it's kind of unsurprising that there are so many symptoms but also that every single person that presents with long covid is going to present in a slightly different way because Mm. my long covid is not the same as the long covid to the person next to me and i think that's really important in this narrative about understanding long covid it's not um it's not a, a, a neat tidy little box because there are so many symptoms that people experience and they can experience experience them in different clusters um, and in different groups of symptoms, but in different severity of the symptoms they experience. You know, my symptoms are not the same as other people's and the severity of the individual symptoms I had will be different to other people's severe symptoms. So we need to really focus on person-centered care. And I don't just mean that in terms of lip service. I mean, we really need to listen to our patients to understand what they're going through. Just awesome that, that there's been a patient-centred uh, research project published in The Lancet. Uh, I think we'll definitely be sharing that um, as part of our show notes for the podcast. Now, Darren, I'm, I'm curious. You've already mentioned that females are actually more prone to developing COVID or long COVID, should long I say? Long COVID, yeah. Is that correct? Are there any other risk factors that potentially uh, have become recognised as something we can definitely recognize yeah yeah so um time and time again um evidence um whether that be from lived experience or or whether that be from published peer-reviewed literature uh, is demonstrating that women are more at risk of developing long covid and i think we don't understand that but again that's another picture that's been seen in other post-viral illnesses um we don't understand why that is yet Um, We also know that there are other groups that are more at risk of long COVID. So that's people that have pre-existing disabilities, people that have pre-existing health issues, people that are younger. So I'll say that again. Younger Younger. people are more likely to get long COVID. Um, And then also people that are in um, lower socioeconomic um, uh, environments. Um, so the other last risk factor is, is actually occupationally. Okay. So we know from the ONS data in the UK that healthcare workers and teachers are more likely to get long COVID, okay. probably due to the fact of exposure to yeah. coronavirus. So there's a whole raft, but I think something that's really important that we recognise in this 
is that there is a very clear risk factor for acute coronavirus, which is um, coming from a black, Asian or minority ethnicity background. Uh, so there is an ethnicity component okay. to acute coronavirus, and we don't understand that. Um, and I think there could be a whole raft of social determinants of health mm -hmm. that may be at play there. But we're not seeing that come out in terms of the groups of people more affected by long COVID. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a that's an outcome that is unclear why. And I think we need to potentially look at that in much more detail. I think it's very unlikely that it's only white affluent people getting long COVID. I think it might be more to do with the fact that health systems often um, do not serve uh, people that are uh, of ethnic diversities uh, better. And so we need to look at whether there is actually um, uh, structural racism at play here in terms of why people are not presenting to healthcare services or research, because yeah. actually long COVID is an invisible disability that is often invalidated. And so if your experience of healthcare has been that often you're not believed or not, not uh, taken seriously with your issues, it's unsurprising that people are not presenting with long COVID, which is on the whole, not really believed very much. Oh goodness. It just, just throws so much perplexity to everything, doesn't it? Darren, I want to just move on to pelvic health. I want to have a bit mm. of a chat to you about what, what trends we might have seen affecting pelvic health issues in women and men. And uh, I'll share some effects about erectile dysfunction, but you're really in tune with what's been happening for the, in the gynecological space from our earlier chat. Yeah, so I'm really pleased that we mentioned this now, because obviously, if your listeners are still with us, obviously, this is the penis podcast, isn't it? So it's about time we talked about some, some pelvic bits. Yeah. So um, yeah, so in terms of that, so there are three key things that I think are worth mentioning in terms of pelvic um, or, or reproductive issues in terms of long COVID. So one of the most commonly recognised things at the moment is actually the impact of men menstrual cycles on people's symptoms. So we know that when women are going through their periods, that their symptoms are being flared up, their symptoms are being made worse. Now, we don't understand that fully, but I think there needs to be a massive improvement in the interest and activities in research into women's issues around why is it that menstruation is impacting people, women's um, symptoms with long COVID. So I think that's that's one thing to be aware of um, if you are treating people living with and affected by long COVID, which is actually menstruation is a big issue in terms of exacerbation of symptoms. The second issue is um, around one common um, symptom or uh, impairment, should I say, seen in long COVID, which is dysautonomia. So the autonomic nervous system, if you're not familiar with, is the automatic nervous system. And it does a whole range of different things. It controls things like a blood pressure and a heart rate. And it also controls things like certain organ functions, like our bladder. Now, we are seeing dysautonomias, which is an umbrella 
term, which is a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. And you mentioned earlier in the symptoms, one of one type of dysautonomia is something called POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And there was a paper published only a day or two ago, which said that actually um, un, un, um, uh, unexplained um, inappropriate tachycardias is actually a phenotype of long COVID. Okay. Um, but yeah. we know that with dysautonomias that can affect organ function. And we are seeing people having bladder dysfunction with long COVID. So basically they're having urinary incontinence. They can't control their bladders because of dysautonomias associated with long COVID. And if your listeners are interested in pelvic health, this is something to be aware of. And the last thing I wanted to mention was actually erectile dysfunction. Um, you said there's a couple of papers and it's true there are, but they're very small in sample sizes, but it's initial yeah. We are seeing, I think what's important to recognize is that research in this type of situation where where we're learning as we go needs to consider high level research like peer review publications, but also research, also evidence from lived experience. And what we are seeing from lived experience is that um, there are more and more men reporting erectile dysfunction. So some are reporting issues in terms of painful erections. And we're seeing this in the support groups more frequently now, where people are describing that when they get an erection, they get pain in their erections, um, and it goes when they don't have an erection. Um, But we are also seeing other men develop other issues, um, such as uh, development of plaques and curvatures or also known as Peyronie's. And so this is now starting to come out in terms of um, reproductive and pelvic health issues. Um, but I think it's an underplayed issue. We're talking, about, we're talking about, you know, pretty much everyone listening to the Penis Project podcast knows about it through their interactions with Melissa uh, and myself as their treating practitioners. And so no one, no one really is going to take on board that erectile dysfunction can happen to a young healthy male but are you are you talking about you know men in their early 20s potentially dealing with erectile dysfunction because of covid on yep. COVID? Yep. So in the support groups, we've got men in their 20s, men in their 30s, men in their 40s um, that are all saying the same thing, which is when I get erections, they're really painful and I can't, I now can't have penetrative sex. Some of them seem to self-resolve, some of them don't, um, some of them are progressing and some of them are starting to develop curvatures um, that's actually um, completely impacting their ability to have um, sexual intercourse, either with themselves or with others. Okay, so we have uh, a couple of podcasts previously on Peroni's disease and uh, we'll have another chat about that down the track, potentially with some specialists when we get a few more cases coming through. Uh, but mm. I, I know that it's an extremely difficult condition to treat Peroni's. It's confounding to practitioners because one of the things is you want to make sure that the condition has been stabilised and you don't start doing surgery on potential scar tissue in an area that might, still be in the process of inflammation. And one of those earlier papers did talk about taking penile uh, tissue samples and and finding that there was actually changes to the endothelial levels and the capacity for nitric oxide to be uh, distributed. So we're talking about cellular damage. And I think it's important to understand that that is is the basis of of acute infection anyway, isn't it? It's it's the endothelial cell dysfunction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why it's so important that, um, you know, in terms of uh, clinical practice, 
being mindful of the wide breadth of symptoms and um, how they can be associated with people living with long COVID and actually the mechanisms that are still unknown of causing long COVID may be impacting other different um, health outcomes. So for example, in terms of pelvic issues, um, and if we're talking about penis podcast, penis issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think men are, men don't talk about, about these issues. You know, there's really clearly known, isn't it? Men often are ashamed of talking about dysfunction of their penis and don't want to share those issues. And so we need to provide those safe, open spaces that enables people to share that information um, so that we can accurately manage it. And I think at the moment, with so much gaslighting and invalidation happening in the context of long COVID, it's actually going to take a really brave man to turn around and say, by the way, since I've had long COVID, I'm also having painful erections and my penis is starting to change shape. And I think that takes a really brave man to be able to share that information when the majority of times they're actually being told that long COVID is either in your head or it's not real. Well, just reflecting while you've been chatting there, Darren, on a couple of younger patients that I've had with Peroni's disease and erectile dysfunction, they've been as young as 17. So this is actually affecting them for potential relationships, for potential fatherhood, for their mental health, for their ongoing viability, you know, in terms of um, continuing the human race. We, I don't want to be dramatic here, but we don't know much about COVID in children. We aren't immunising children. But, you know, potentially we just don't know how long virus is going to persist in our tissues. And, I mean, you know, this just adds weight, I think, on a prime reflection to the next generation as well, which, you know, we're going to keep on learning, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And, you know, whether and I think it comes back to those three things that I mentioned earlier in terms of the mechanisms that are hypothesized, you know, whether it is viral persistence, viral fragments or immune dysfunction that's causing this. And, I, you know, I think... We, we've had different conversations, haven't we? And my understanding is that if Peyronie's is traditionally thought to be associated with trauma, however, this might be demonstrating actually there's a different mechanism at play. It could be quite enlightening around what could actually be going on with this um, dysfunction of the penis um, or impairment of the penis, um, but equally so how this can affect anyone of any age and and actually the mechanisms could really open some, some doors in terms of understanding and better understanding could hopefully lead to better uh, approaches to interventions and management. Excellent. Well, I've got a couple more questions uh, for you, Darren. Thank you so much for this long chat. Uh, vaccinations. Now, there is some really positive information starting to flow through, and I'm pretty sure you will have this personal experience to share as well. So, when vaccinations became available, you're someone who's had COVID and long COVID. Uh, acutely chronically when you had the opportunity to have a vaccination despite already having covid was was it something that was recommended or you've had it so let's not worry about it and then what sort of impact did you have which whichever way you went Yeah, this is a really, really interesting discussion. And actually, there was a paper again published only a couple of days ago uh, by some of the leaders in immunology from the States, which I'll send you for linking, um, which was about changes to long COVID symptoms associated with vaccination. So I am, as rightly said, a younger person with long COVID, and I am doubly vaccinated. I had my first dose of Pfizer vaccine in January this year this year and I have my second dose in March and what I can happily share is that at both stages of having my vaccination 
they led to an improvement in my symptoms longer term. So in when I have, and I won't lie, I was really apprehensive about having vaccination because oh. I understood that potentially my immune system was dysfunctional. My immune system had responded to having had the virus. It was still playing up. At that time, I was still not working. I'd only just returned to working full time, but was quite struggling still oh. and actually taking a day off of annual leave a week. So I was worried about that. Absolutely. And when I had the first vaccine, I was floored for a week. It completely reproduced all my symptoms. But after that week, I started to have an increase in my threshold by which I could exert myself without an exacerbation. And that maintained. But then it started to drop off by March okay. came. I yep. had my second dose. And the second dose did the same thing, which is it completely reproduced all my symptoms, somewhat worse, but only lasting for 48 hours. Okay. And then after that, I had an even in greater increase in my threshold by which I could exert myself. And as I speak to you now, we're in August, and I have maintained that and actually continue to improve upon that. So I'm one of the um, anticipated 40% of people that have this phenomenon of improving symptoms after vaccination when living with long COVID. However, I want to be explicitly clear here. That's a proportion of people living with long COVID. Unfortunately, we are also seeing a proportion who get worse and we okay. have had some people who have had long COVID who have also had mild long COVID symptoms and had the vaccination and got worse. So this is not simple. And I think it really does bring us to understand that there is clearly something happening with our immune system in immunology, terms of what's immunology, immunology, immunology. It's okay. flagging up, isn't it? It's Absolutely. really making clear sense. But what we're hearing more and more and more is even amongst, I don't want to speak for those people that have got worse because of vaccinations yeah. but amongst the peer support groups that I'm within I do hear this over more, more commonly shared narrative that despite getting worse it's definitely not as bad as getting COVID again and okay. so they would still have the vaccination and they don't regret having the vaccination but just wish it hadn't made them worse because I think you know yeah. all of this yeah horrible situation of living with long COVID, and I do want to emphasize that, it's really rubbish, um, is, you know, it's profound disability that people have. And it, it's not just a short amount of time, you know, some people are still like 17, 18 months later with long COVID. Um, and some of them still not even able to work after 18 months. So, you know, I think it's really important that we recognize that vaccinations have an important play in preventing long COVID. For some people, they may have a role in alleviating symptoms, but that's not for everybody. And that's why we need to better understand the mechanisms of long COVID so that we can stratify people appropriately as to who may benefit for different interventions. And that here we are in the UK at the moment talking about booster shots. So oh, I'm quite I will... Yeah, because I will be front and centre wanting a booster shot because I've seen what the vaccinations have done to my long COVID, which is they've made it better. Um, but I will all, won't lie, I will still have in the back of my head, but I'm on a really stable trajectory. Sure. What if it does tip me another direction that I didn't want to go in, which is worse? So mm. I'm going to keep that in my mind. And I think, but it wouldn't stop me getting the vaccination. 
And are they talking about doing um, boosters with a different um, type of device? Uh, sorry, vaccination? Oh, or, or is I've that got lost yeah, sure. I've got lost on all that now. I'm, I'm. There's so many conversations happening, um, and I don't think that because one of the arguments around boosters is that there is vaccine inequity around the world, and so some of the conversations are that high-income countries that are doing relatively well with their vaccination programs shouldn't be considering boosters until there is vac- vaccine equity across the world, okay. because this is a global problem and you can't manage it with national solutions we need global solutions and so some of the conversations are actually what we need to do is instead of having booster shots we need to be giving first doses to other parts of the world so i don't know where we are yet with that but i know that there's we are well i'm i i i have a political opinion and i think that our country are moving towards a national response of boosters uh, but we shall see how that goes Wonderful. I know this conversation could continue for hours, but you've already been so generous. I'm sure. We always have a good chat, don't we? Ever <laughs> since Singapore in 2015. <laughs> we do. Now, you are quite an icon. I, you have founded a whole resource for physiotherapists. You've also got the Long COVID Physio podcast where you interview people actually been going through similar to yourself but as you know as you've mentioned every story is quite unique could you tell us a little bit about the long covid physio uh, application or website that you've actually developed because we do want to be able to share that Oh, thank you so much for asking. So, yeah, so I, uh, along with some other physiotherapists that are living with long COVID that were originally from the UK and the United States, um, co-founded what is now called Long COVID Physio. So Long COVID Physio is an international peer support, education and advocacy association of physiotherapists living with long COVID and our allies. We have um, a peer support group for physiotherapists and other allied health professionals that are living with long COVID. Um, We also provide um, educational resources. So we have our website, longcovid.physio, that has a whole range of information um, that's constantly being updated. We've also worked with uh, many different partners, including the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy here in the UK in terms of their COVID. COVID-19 standards. We've also worked with World Physiotherapy in terms of international work, um, including briefing paper nine on safe rehabilitation interventions for people living with long COVID specific to physical activity, which includes exercise and sports. And we've also worked closely on their World Physiotherapy Day or World PT Day resources, which this year has a theme of long COVID. So we've done a lot of work around that, but also we do uh, advocacy work. And a lot of that is around reaching out to different groups around sharing the messages of safe rehabilitation. We know that rehabilitation um, is part of universal health coverage. It's it's a fundamental human right to have access to rehabilitation, but rehabilitation must be safe and effective. And we know that rehabilitation is not just 
exercise. And so therefore, as an advocacy group, we've been very um, uh, uh, visible in our position, which is that we think that rehabilitation is fundamentally important in supporting people living with and affected by long COVID, um, but that it must be safe and effective. And that's why that briefing paper by World Physiotherapy, which was led by us at World Physiotherapy, uh, uh, um, uh, Long COVID Physio, is so vital um, because it's an initial starting point around those specifics of physical activity, including exercise and sports. Wonderful. We'll be sharing those definitely uh, as an additional to the podcast today. Darren, I'd really just love you to potentially just reflect on your own experience. And if someone was potentially recognising these symptoms listening, that they've been through the acute infectious stage and four to six weeks later they're starting to feel like they just can't get back on their feet. Like you said, you crashed six months, four, six months, wasn't it? Six months later, even though you thought you could go on. We're basically in our infancy when trying to work out how to treat this condition, how to manage it long-term. Is there any particular message that you'd just like to share upon reflection from your own experiences, everyone newly encountering this situation? Yeah, I think a really consistent message that many of us living with long COVID um, continue to want to share is that when you first start to recognise that maybe you're not fully recovering after acute coronavirus, we know that the evidence is demonstrating that people that don't get adequate rest and people that try or are forced to continue to exert themselves more. So this is people like, for example, healthcare workers or mothers that don't have the opportunity to rest, those people are more likely to go on to develop long COVID. And so that is why the message of hashtag stop rest pace is so important. This message that has been kindly shared by communities living with and affected by ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis, commonly referred to chronic fatigue syndrome. They kindly shared this message with us and it really does, really does work. I can share from my personal experience that stop, rest and pace has been the effective intervention that has led to my trajectory of overwhelmingly improving. If I had continued to push through, I would not be able to sit here today and have this conversation with you in the way that I can because my brain fog would have impacted my ability to do so. So if anybody is feeling like they are developing uh, symptoms that may look like it could be long COVID, I would encourage people to stop, rest, pace, pacing is not easy and so because of that I'd encourage people to reach out to others that might be living with or affected by long COVID because peer support is so important. Darren that's just quite breathtaking and I can see you but you're looking so well I know you've thrown away that walking stick. <laughs> yeah I have a long time ago thank you and that's pleased for that yeah. <laughs> are, you, are, are you just back are you able to yeah, what, tell us what you what you are doing. What's your everyday look like at the moment? 
So at the moment, I would say that I'm about 80% back to my normal function. Um, I am able to work full time. I'm able to participate in my research activities now, which I'm really excited about because that's so meaningful to me. Um, I'm I'm also able to go out and socially participate. Like I've been out for dinner this week and that felt really nice, even though I I still felt really anxious about being in a restaurant inside. Um, But um, I still... I still can't exercise, um, which does have an impact on my ability to perform my job. Um, You know, I I run a group rehab intervention for people living with HIV. And every time I've tried to do the exercises, including chair based exercises, I lose my weekend because the classes run on a Friday and it just keeps happening. And there was a paper only published a couple of days ago, which was looking at um, invasive cardiopulmonary exercise testing amongst people living with long COVID. And what they have demonstrated is that the impairment is at the peripheral level. It's not due to heart or lung dysfunction. It's actually due to oxygen impaired uh, uh, distribution in the muscle. So this is not associated with deconditioning. This is a genuine impairment at the level of the peripherals. And so can share that with you as well so I still can't exercise and as a physio that's Mm. kind of part of our identity in a way isn't it and (laughs) yeah yeah, do you know what I mean and and for me I don't know what you mean I'm also getting bigger and I don't want to get fatter. So oh, I'm, I want to lose some weight and I want to exercise. You know, I'm a gay man. Body image is important to me. So, <laughs> But I, I'm, yeah, you know, I want to be clear. I'm so much better than I was. You know, I'm 18 months down the line, yeah. but I wouldn't want to go through that again, not for love nor money. No. Okay. I'm going to wind up there. I really think it's important to sit back and let people listen and pause and see where they want to take this themselves in their own homes, in their own communities. Darren Brown, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm going to tell you about a boy who lives inside me. He's been there all of Hi, this is Dr Joe. Thank you so much for listening to our program today. And we're pleased to let you know that we will be having weekly podcasts, not fortnightly, as originally proposed. And this is because of the popularity of our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions, and so much feedback. And Melissa and I greatly appreciate it. What we'd really love you to do is share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download off Spotify or subscribe to thepenisproject.org and then you'll get a weekly email of our newest releases. Also feel free to send us a review and this will greatly help in our ongoing ability to bring you new and fresh information as that's the way we build what comes next. We also have show notes attached and This gives a bit of a background into any additional resources or explanations of what we're talking about. Finally, it's my great pleasure to let you know that PROST, the exercise program which sponsors our podcast, is now available on a USB resource for any man diagnosed with prostate cancer, an exercise program. Clinicians can buy these as well as the everyday bloke. So feel free to check out prost.com.au. 
Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Through the sadness and the sorrow of those dread dark days, I learned to value each and every one of those warm afternoons. Boys on their bikes, shooting stones at each other through the trees. Try to deny the going down of the sun. We're just having too much fun. <laughs>